when Josh approached Matt and I and asked if we would fill in for a couple of weeks, um, he asked, he suggested that we pick a psalm and that the reason being is because he didn't want to neglect the Old Testament, and that's a real easy thing to do. It's not, not for a bad reason that we uh, focus a lot on the New Covenant, but there's so much richness in the Old Testament. I was thinking this morning, you remember Christ uh, being confronted by the religious leaders in Israel, and he said, you misunderstand that the scriptures, they speak of me. The Old Testament scriptures, they speak of me. And if you remember in the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he spends a great amount of time explaining the scriptures, opening their mind to the scriptures so they could understand that the Christ must suffer and die and raise from the dead. And the apostles, we're reading through the book of Acts right now. You've seen the apostles going and doing that very thing, showing from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise from the dead. And this is the message that they proclaim. So the scriptures, even as Paul told Titus, he knew the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's richness, it's our foundation, it was the way God was orchestrating and bringing to, the, to, uh, to bear the Son of God and fulfilling all that he had promised. So I appreciate that Josh wants to be careful not to neglect the richness of the Old Testament. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 32. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32, we'll read through that quickly. Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up, As by the heat of summer, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, what love, what grace you have manifest to us that you have given us your written revelation an astounding and beautiful form, Lord, and all of your wisdom has produced it. And Lord, it's an intimidating, a fearful thing to 
presume to explain it so that people understand what you have said. But that's just what we do through our preaching. It's, it's your wisdom that has determined that through the foolishness of preaching that life and faith in Christ would be produced. So, Father, I ask that you would be with my mouth this morning, that you would help me not only to speak accurately, but to speak clearly, that the way that I present would not in any way detract, but that Christ would be magnified and that he would be the focal point and that we would delight in your truth this morning. Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning and that you would show us Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. So a mascal of David. What is a mascal or a mascal, uh, as, as it may be pronounced? I'm not exactly sure, but you, you may have seen this title in the Psalms on several other occasions. There's at least a dozen or more Psalms. I believe Psalm 32 is the first. There's Psalm 42, 44, 45, 52, 53, 54, 55, 74, 78, 88, 89, and 142. All of these claim to be a mascal. You see this title frequently. What is it? What does that mean? A mascal is essentially a didactic poem or a poem intended to teach or instruct. So a mascal is calling you to look at it attentively and carefully and then to act prudently or circumspectly. In essence, what David is saying with this title is pay close attention to my poem, carefully reason through what I'm instructing and respond wisely. That's what he's communicating with his title. So everyone agrees that the author of, of Psalm 32 is King David. And pretty much everyone also agrees uh, that we don't really know with absolute certainty the um, occasion for him writing this particular psalm. We don't know with 100% accuracy. That said, most feel, and I tend to agree with this, that he wrote this not long after the unveiling of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband in order to cover things up. The consensus is that this psalm is likely closely related to Psalm 51, that it was likely written afterward. Psalm 51 is David's amazing and honest confession of all of his sins and his pleading with God for forgiveness after he was exposed by Nathan the prophet. He says things like, My sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And behold, I was even brought forth or born in iniquity. He also says, have mercy on me. He says, wash me thoroughly. Purge me with hyssop. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. But it, David also says this in Psalm 51.13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And I truly feel that Psalm 32 is Dave's following up on this statement in Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, David is exposing his own foolishness in attempt to turn the hearts of sinners toward God. And his desired goal is that his readers would have blessedness 
blessedness. And you can see this in the introduction of his psalm. Verse 1, blessed is the one. In verse 2, blessed is the man. It's even evident in the way that he closes the psalm. He says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright. Again, this is what David desires for his readers, that they would experience blessedness. Blessedness. So what is blessedness? We need to define blessedness. We see that term a lot. The term gets thrown around a lot right now, doesn't it? It's become very popular societally. Even among unbelievers, you hear everybody talking about being blessed. Someone gets a good job, they say, I am blessed. They have healthy kids, I am blessed. There's opportunity to purchase a new car, I'm blessed. You'll see a famous recording artist land a new hit song, and they say, boy, I'm blessed. An athlete or a a race car driver wins a race, boy, am I blessed. An actor wins an Oscar, I am blessed. I've noticed people in just in everyday life that you interact with, they, they use the word blessed for any good thing or a pleasure that benefits them. I've even seen it on bumper stickers. It just says blessed. I don't know if you've seen that. So what does the word mean? Well, the simple and literal definition of the word blessed used in the Bible is happy. It's a word for happy. In other words, happy is the man, or happy are his conditions, or happy are his prospects. Blessedness refers to the kind of happiness that wipes away the normal cares and worries of this world, or at least makes them livable. The Greek word uh, that is translated blessed in our Bible is makarios, and it was originally used poetically to describe the blessedness of the Greek gods because they were unaffected by the problems of uh, mortal man on earth. Later, it was associated with rich, with the rich people, because the rich people seemed to be spared all the troubles that the poor people had. Aristotle, later, he coined the word macarism, meaning beatitude. That's what beatitude is. Beatitude simply extolled the good fortune and and those things that amassed to a person uh, that produced a happiness. So spouse, children, material belongings, physical prowess, wealth, intelligence, everyone who enjoyed such things was declared as happy or blessed. But what is the real source of blessedness? The truest origination of blessedness. Is it the accumulation of earthly benefits? If we were able to see and take honest evaluation, true blessedness is only known and experienced by a holy God. He is the only one who is truly blessed. God is separate and untainted by the corruption found in his creation. He's separate from that. And his glorious perfections and his nature are unlike anything in his creation. God is triune in nature, and beside him there is no other God. Absolute in power and authority, nothing disturbs God, and he never has to react to anything. Nothing upsets him since he determines all things. 
the things that we point to in this world are pathetically and infinitely beneath the blessedness that God is and knows. It's not even worthy to be compared. Paul says this in Romans 125, that mankind exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, creator, or the creature rather than the creator, listen, who is blessed forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be. Chapter 9 of Romans, um, when speaking of Israel, he says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1, Paul describes how he has been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You understand that God is, he is everything that is good and beneficial. It's not that he has it, he is it. God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is life. God is happiness. The things that we point to in this world are pathetically and infinitely beneath the blessedness that God is and knows. It's sad that people look forward to mansions and streets of gold in heaven. A place where there's no more problems. Now those things are not bad in and of themselves, but true blessedness is being in the presence of the blessed God and experiencing the fullness of his glorious perfections. You want to talk about blessedness. Folks, that is what makes hell, hell. It's not fire and pitchforks that make hell so bad. It's the fact that hell is completely devoid of all the benefits of God's blessed glory. That's what makes hell, hell. And it's not a bad thing to recognize by faith that any certain earthly benefit has come from God's hand and and it's good and pleasing to us. That's, That's not a bad thing. But genuine blessedness originates with God and is only found in him, period. And David makes a strong point that this kind of blessedness is absolutely absent from the wicked. That's his point can't have that blessedness. This is our next point from the text, that wicked behavior does not bring blessedness upon an individual. The wicked can't attain it. In fact, if you look at the first two verses of uh, David's psalm and invert them to a negative statement, it demonstrates that this is what he's communicating. You could put it like this. Cursed is the one whose transgression is not forgiven, whose sin is not covered. Cursed is the man against whom the Lord counts iniquity and in whose spirit there is deceit. So there's two ways to look at blessing and cursing. One is related to our position before God and our relationship with God on judgment day. And the other is related to our dealings here on the earth what we deal with in a practical way here in this life. So in terms of judgment that is to come, there is no blessing for the guilty. It doesn't exist. 
Nahum said this in chapter 1 of Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God's patient. He's slow to anger, but he will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. There's no possible way. That's what that means. There's no way it's going to happen. It is impossible to stop the wrath of God towards the guilty. Why? Because God is a jealous God, it says. Jealous of what? Is he jealous of us? No. Not jealous of man. He will not let even the smallest thing blaspheme his his perfections. God is jealous for his own glory, for his own name. Some would say, well, that's not a very loving thing for God to do. Right? Well, really. Actually, it is the greatest possible love that God would protect his own glory and not allow it to be defiled. In fact, he would cease to be the glorious God that he claims to be if he was unfaithful to protect his glory. The fact that God perfectly protects his own glory is incredibly comforting and stabilizing for us. Just think of it. If God did not judge to the fullest extent, he would be unjust, unfaithful, untrue, and untrustworthy. Couldn't believe him. We wouldn't trust anything about him. In fact, he would be like his fallen creation, would he not? But God is faithful, and he's true, and he's trustworthy, and he is God, a God of true justice, and he will administer true justice. But that's a problem for the wicked. Hence the fact that the truly blessed, the genuinely blessed, are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These are the crimes for which all mankind is guilty, transgression and sin and iniquity he lists here. Transgression, it speaks of a crime of rebellion. The word literally means rebellion. That we revolt, we rise up in clear defiance of God's authority. We will not have this God to rule over us. Sin, it defines our failure to obey God or to be godly. It's an act uh, according Uh, to our flesh rather than to the righteous character of God. An iniquity describes how we have perverted the image of God and all the designs of God. Literally, we blaspheme his perfect name by our rebellion, our failures, and our perversion. That's what it's describing here. But that's why David is pointing out genuine blessedness. True blessedness, true happiness comes to those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven. Literally, the word means is lifted up and carried away. That transgression is gone, it's taken away. 
it actually gives, uh, it gives meaning to the imagery of the scapegoat in the Old Testament, if you remember the scapegoat in Leviticus. So you have two goats that are chosen, and they would confess the sins over these goats. One would be sacrificed, and one they would let go, and it would take off into the wilderness, remember? Never to return. So the picture is that the sins were being carried away, never to be given back. That was the picture. A person whose sin has been lifted up and carried away forever is truly blessed. A person whose sin has been lifted away. And he says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. The word for covered here is closely related to the word atonement. So atonement literally means to cover sin so that it is never again in the view of God. In other words, it can never be seen, and you are forever treated as if you never sinned. That's the picture. So a person whose sin is never regarded by God is truly blessed, is what David is saying. Finally, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This is what is meant behind the word justification. Justification. It's like having an account that tallies up to your total guilt before God. And it's a large sum okay, for every one of us. And it can never be paid. Not even a portion of it can we pay. We have a huge total of guilt. God simply moves that tally and takes and moves that sum to another's account. That's what's going on here with this word. It's exactly the picture that Paul described in Romans chapter 4, and he even quotes Psalm 32. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. That is due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count or will not count his sin. So he's quoting from our psalm here. Folks, going, going, uh, God is going to judge. It's going to happen. He's going to judge through the person of Christ. Everything is seen by God, even our thoughts and our intentions. And all is exposed before him. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is missed. Nothing will escape his judgment. We have no idea how heinously guilty we are and how much judgment we truly deserve. I appreciated what Josh said a few weeks ago when he said, I wish you could just see for a moment, just for a few seconds, see what hell was like and understand what you rightly deserve. And it's true. We are weak to understand the, the gravity of our sin. How can one possibly compare having wealth and health and prosperity in this world and compare that to the surpassing greatness of being declared innocent by God? It's not worth being compared. You want to talk about being blessed. You want to throw that word blessing around. This is blessed. This is real blessing. Because only the innocent escape judgment 
and can be in the presence of the blessed God. But if your guilt remains, you're not blessed, you're truly cursed. Now again, all of what we just discussed is related to future judgment. What about here and now in this life? The same applies in a practical sense, particularly if you're a child of God. What do I mean? I mean that God will not be mocked. He will not allow his name to be blasphemed. Remember, he is patient and he's powerful, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished because he is rightfully jealous for his name. And this is why much of mankind's sinfulness produces such pain. It's a right thing that there is suffering because of sin. That's why much uh, it, it demonstrates the vileness of man's sin, that it is not a small matter. But it's even worse when those who claim to be forgiven, they say they are loved by God, but they sin grievously, unrepentantly. It's not a big deal. We don't take our sins seriously. Should God just allow his children to blaspheme his name without disciplining them? Should that occur? What is more, God's discipline of his children is the most loving thing he could do, providing great benefit, if only we would see it. That's where blessing resides. In other words, isn't it better to be disciplined by a heavenly father than to be condemned by a righteous judge? I think so. We might point to certain advantages in this life as blessings, and it's right and good to give God credit for those good things that we enjoy. But a person can go through this life and never have any of those advantages and be the most blessed person on the earth. What David is communicating is that genuine blessedness can only be experienced in both a positional and practical way when sin is dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. But what keeps us from having that sin dealt with? What keeps that from happening? David tells us right through the heart of this psalm, verses 3 through 9, that blessedness requires honest and humble confession. Honest and humble confession. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The imagery David uses here is fantastic. I mean, we're talking about Hebrew poetry here. There's going to be imagery. But day and night your hand was heavy upon me, Lord. I was ill. I felt as if my bones were rotting away and my soul was continuously groaning within me. He was weeping and mourning constantly. There was no peace. It says day and night, constantly. There was no relief from the pressure, even at night. There was no rest. He felt the pain deeply that he was a sinner, yet he still refused to humbly confess it. He refused. Instead, it says he kept silent. This is so often the behavior of sinners. 
And we're all guilty of this at times. We try to put it off. We try to ignore it. Perhaps my guilt will just go away. I should just be forgiven anyway, right? My sin's no big deal. Maybe we change the subject or we try to fix everything ourselves. We point to others' things as the source of our problem or maybe point to other people as the source of our problem. We're a victim. David did all of this and more, did he not? Going from idolatry to murder and then trying to ignore everything away. It'll just go away. People won't notice. Our tendency is to do everything except honestly confess our own sin and unworthiness, particularly when it's a sensitive circumstance or a sensitive relationship. We don't, we don't want to humble ourselves and humbly acknowledge our sin. It's more convenient if we just ignore it uh, or point out somebody else's sin. That's, that's more easy, easily done than confessing my own sin. David says to God, your hand was heavy on me. The hand of God was heavy on him. To say that God's hand was heavy on him represented the just wrath or the just punishment of God's hand. There's a great illustration of this, and I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. I'm going to read this briefly. If you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1. The Israelites had gone up to battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines had conquered Israel, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Philistines have it. And it says, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. That's their God that they created. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of God. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Maybe there was an earthquake or something. I don't know. He fell down. Let's put him back. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen down face downward on the ground before the ark of God, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. You get the picture that God's giving? He's impotent. He cut off his head and he cut off his hands. He has no power and no life. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So the hands of Dagon are cut off. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, But Ashdod, uh, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God around, uh, of God of Israel there. 
But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As soon as the ark of the Lord of Israel, uh, excuse me, they, they sent uh, therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the Lord and let it return to its own place. Uh, because they panicked. I skipped a part. <laughs> but you get the point, and it says it over and over and over and over again. They were inflicted with terror and with physical affliction by the hand of God. They recognized that God was pressing down hard on them. He was afflicting them. He was punishing them for the wickedness of taking and defiling the image that represents him. And other gods are impotent because they don't exist, and you will return it, was the, was the message. So, now, David was not struck with tumors, was he? We don't see David struck with plagues and tumors. But he was saying that God's hand was heavy in judgment upon his soul so that he was tormented day and night, and he felt as if he was dying. God's hand was heavy on him. He's saying, I am the king of your chosen people, Israel, but you are justly placing your heavy hand on me as if I were a blaspheming Gentile Philistine because I was trying to ignore my own sin and guilt before you. Frankly, uh, the more he fought against confession, the more his vitality drained, just as a man, it says, walking through the desert, and his life is draining from him, and there's no water. That's the imagery. Strength just rapidly runs out of him, and he has no strength to even take another step. That's the picture here. David despaired of life. Finally, in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness of any man's iniquity cannot come without honest confession. That's the point. David poured it all out. He didn't minimize it. He didn't blame shift. He didn't hide anything. He confessed his transgressions. And it was no one else's sin. It was his sin. Remember? He uncovered everything before the Lord. And you know what God did? It says, David uncovered it, and God covered it up, is what the psalm says. And the result was that David went from serious oppression from the hand of God to being free from his guilt and experiencing infinite blessedness. And that's why he said in verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
no deceit, no guile, no hypocrisy, no concealing of the matter. It's a sincere, honest confession and brings forgiveness and blessedness. We want God to bless us, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be blessed by God? Both spiritually and physically, we want to be blessed. But we so easily and conveniently ignore our sin, our sinful conduct, as if it's no big deal. Both our omission and commission. I mean, this this sin blasphemes the great name of God. We presume upon the love and forgiveness of God and treat our sinful behavior as if it's no big deal. We don't put much merit with it. We don't understand the gravity of our sin and the mistreatment we are handing to our Savior when we claim to love him, and we do that at the same time. It's hypocrisy. And then when God... God's hand is heavy upon us. We complain and we call foul. It's not fair. We feel God is not treating us fairly. Worse yet, we keep ignoring our sin. And we struggle with this. We all struggle with this. Hardest part for me in doing this is in being up here saying these things, as I'm, as I'm typing this out, I'm just gripped with conviction because this is me. I do this. You want your life marked by blessedness? You want to be blessed? Start walking in continual honesty before the Lord and learn to love his glory more than anything else. Even your reputation. Love him more. So David instructs his readers, starting in verse 6, therefore, if Everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Essentially, David is saying this. If you're inclined to being right with God, if that's the desire of your heart, do not put off the honest confession of your guilt now. Quit waiting. Don't put it off. That's essentially what he's saying. Confess it to God before he has to deal with you harshly. Don't put it off. Confess it now. Drop down to verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I had an older carpenter I worked with during my apprenticeship. Um, He was much older than me, but this was many years ago. His name was Ken Meckler. And I learned a lot from Ken in terms of my trade. But whenever you did something wrong or messed up somehow, Ken would always say, don't be stupid. He'd always say that. Don't be stupid. Come on, buddy, don't be stupid. That's what David is saying to his readers here. Don't be stupid like I was. Don't do it. He says, listen to me and learn from my failure. Don't be dumb and stubborn like a mule. That's what he says. Even a horse by nature is wild and uncontrolled. 
It's unwilling to be caught. It's unwilling to be made to obey or do anything. A wild horse will not subject itself. They have to be curbed. They have to be forced. You have to put a bit in their mouth. Don't make God have to put a bit in your mouth and drag you to confession and obedience through his heavy hand of chastening. Go now and be open and honest. Take full responsibility now before that has to happen. Now jump back to verse 6 again. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Confess now. Now is the time. Confess it. Instead of bearing the heavy hand of God's chastening, he will be your hiding place instead. Or said another way, like we said in Psalm 90, you are my dwelling place. Remember, we camped on that a little bit and talked about that. You will be my hiding place, and instead, I will be spared your chastening. I will be spared those things. That doesn't mean you will never have trouble in this life. That's not what it's saying. We're guaranteed trouble in this life. Christ guaranteed it for us. What it means is that you will not have to experience the soul-crushing weight of God's discipline upon you when you honestly confess and subject yourself to him and to his glory. But this also applies to those who stay hardened in unbelief. Stop rejecting God and confess your guilt before him before the tsunami of God's judgment sweeps over the creation like a rush of great waters and you are wiped out with the rest of the guilty. That's what God's judgment does. Only God is your hiding place from that. The last point made in Psalm 32 is that blessedness should produce joy and rejoicing. It should produce joy and rejoicing. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This first phrase, many are the sorrows of the wicked, it's likely aimed at those who are still not heeding David's warning. It's a last-ditch effort. Those that are remaining stubborn like a mule, it's a warning. It's a last effort to prevent that reader from the bitter sorrows that follow an unrepentant heart. Don't do it. But for the upright in heart, you are greatly blessed of God. It's not your destiny to endure the sorrows of the wicked. Yours is to have great blessedness and happiness. You are forever surrounded by the love of God. And David says, be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. This is fitting. God deserves to have us express our joyful gratitude this way. 
I, I sat thinking about this. I imagined you have one of your children and there's something that would greatly please them and benefit them and you sacrifice hard to be able to purchase something very special for your child because you love them. And you give it to them and they're totally indifferent. They're not excited about it. They don't have a grateful spirit. There's no joy in their life. What kind of a disappointment would that be? But we're talking about the giving of the very Son of God so that we would not only not face the judgment that we rightly deserve, but we would become co-heirs with Christ. And we don't have joy. It's easy for us to forget the gravity of our guilt that's been forgiven us and the blessedness of being in right standing with God and in right relationship with God. We forget how substantial that is. Our sin has been dealt with. It's dealt with now. And we now have rest in him. We're surrounded with this love. Be glad. Be blessed. Be happy. Conclusion, David was a man after God's own heart who went astray and it cost him dearly. Didn't it? He lost his firstborn child with Bathsheba. He was in constant turmoil in his household. It was upheaval. His son Absalom rebelled and almost overthrew David's family and his reign. I mean, it would have been the death of everybody in his household. Absalom was finally killed and it devastated David. And the troubles didn't end there. His life was filled with difficulty and he was always surrounded by bloodshed. That was his life. But David was blessed because he was forgiven and he was loved by God. Even after all of his tragic failures, God honored him. God honored him. It was recorded in Scripture over and over and over that David was a man after God's own heart. What a title. What a tremendous honor, even after all of his sin. And every king after David was judged by the standard of David. Amazing. Most amazing was the fact that the Messiah came through the line of David and would forever reign on the throne of David. What honor for a man who sinned so grievously. Terrible struggle in life, but eternal blessing. The poetic structure of Psalm 32 is not just from a repentant man who lovingly tried to spare you and me from his mistakes. It's a message from a gracious God who wants the same thing for us. This is the word of God. So I want, I want to address those here who have never humbly acknowledged your sin and your guilt before God before and completely trusted in Christ. I want to communicate this to you. God has graciously given you truth regarding your guilt and your need, and he's warned you of his coming judgment that you cannot escape. 
without his forgiveness. You will not escape. Notice that in this psalm, there's no call to ceremonial washing. There's no command to go sacrifice an animal. There's no instruction to do a religious act of any kind in this psalm. Have you noticed that? The entire focus of Psalm 32 is the heart of man in his spiritual state. Reconciliation, forgiveness, salvation have always been required for uh, are always required genuine faith. And you need to completely trust in God for deliverance. It demonstrates the nature of true religion. It's always involved a spiritual transaction between God and the soul of man. That's what's required. So I plead with you to confess your sin. Confess it to God. You can't imagine the blessedness. I know so many have tried but you cannot understand the blessedness of his forgiveness and the love that is forever yours if you'll turn from your stubbornness and submit yourself to God by placing your faith in Christ. I also want to address those who are believers in Christ who do know forgiveness. If you're his, shouldn't his glory be the most important thing in your life? Shouldn't it be? If so, then... Treating our sin flippantly is not an act of faith. That's an exercise in unbelief. It's not fitting for us. Let's all strive together to walk in the light, to confess our sin honestly and humbly, and to seek genuine blessedness that is only found in our Savior, who is forever blessed. Father, we ask you that you would help us to wisely examine our own hearts, to wisely examine our own conduct, and that we would honestly lay ourselves bare before you, taking honest evaluation. We need your help in this, Lord, because all of us are stubborn like a mule, and we are foolish. Lord, help us to walk honestly before you, confessing our guilt. And help us to love the glory of Christ above our own glory. We pray this in Christ's name. We ask for your blessing.